Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves, Assistant Director of the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, you know, during these History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the great research being done by scholars who have received support in the form of research grants and fellowships of different kinds from the Hagley Center. One such scholar joins me today. Maya Silber is a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Maya, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Greg. Oh, you're welcome. Let's start by painting with broad strokes. What is it that you're researching and writing about? So I'm researching and writing about casual labor, um, which is a form of labor that is a little bit tricky to pin down because it's often defined against what we think of as the norm of work. So that's nine to five job. You go in every day, you have that job for a long time, maybe even for your entire life. Um, but there have always been forms of work that don't fit into that model, um, sometimes called day labor, casual labor, itinerant or migrant labor. Um, today, we often talk about gig work. Um, so these are sort of forms of work broadly that um, we associate with mobility on both the occupational and geographic level, but work that is taken up one day and put down after some period, um, at which point a worker may move on to a different job. Um, so my, my project really started with thinking about how can we tell a labor history that is not sort of centered around a single occupation that a worker may work in for their entire lives, but about these different forms of work that may together constitute the basis for someone's survival. Um, and that's, you know, that's a tricky project because it involves sort of following these workers around to many different places. Um, and so what I really wanted to show is how um, those forms of work, even as we think of them as the sort of exception from the norm, have in fact always been a major feature of the economy. Um, and that's true even in the moment that my period zooms in on, which is the moment immediately after World War II, um, which we often think of as this moment of sort of greater stability and security um, before job protections um, began to erode in a major way in the 1970s. Um, so my project is sort of going into the heart of that moment and following both workers themselves who are scraping by with multiple forms of employment, and also looking at the political discussions about what this type of labor is, whether it's good or bad, should it be abolished or protected? Should workers be empowered? Should they be trained for different conversations? Um, and following those debates and experiences over the course of roughly two decades. Could you maybe be a little bit more specific about the frame um of your project, both in terms of the temporal focus, um, as well as um, perhaps the spatial focus? Do you have a particular place that you're looking at? Yeah, so temporally, my project really picks up um, immediately after the war. Um, so roughly, you know, my story starts in 1945. Um, and this is a moment, of course, immediately following the Depression, when discussions about itinerancy and casual work come to the fore of political focus in a major way. So the Depression is a moment um, when we're concerned not only with unemployment, um, but with casual employment, with unstable employment, with moving in and out of work. Um, and the political efforts, both on the part of you know, the high level of politics of Congress and people in power and also in the part of labor unions are really geared at, you know, moving toward a state of greater security in that moment. So my work really picks up um, kind of immediately after that with the discussions of like, hey, we've entered this moment of post-war prosperity, the economy seems to have improved since the Great Depression, yet, wait a second, all of these patterns we thought um, had gone away are in fact still present in the economy in a major way. So the 
the sort of um, opening moment of my dissertation is um, in 1950, um, there is a congressional committee discussing um, low-income families, and in particular, this one social worker that I'm following, um, her name is Helen Hall, and she collects a series of case studies. There are about 100 of them, um, and to speak to your geographical question, these are all over the country, and these are families who are experiencing what she calls this pattern of broken work. Um, so that's really the kind of moment when I'm beginning with, okay, we, you know, the labor movement is empowered as it's never been before. Um, we have greater sort of welfare protections on the federal level, but what do we do with this category of workers? Um, and you, you know, for Helen Hall, these are people making less than $2,000 a year, um, which is as much as about a quarter of the population. And they don't, they don't seem to be protected by all of these new laws we put in place. So what do we do with them? Um, and to answer your geographic question, um, I'm really moving around geographically, and that's like another way in which um, my my project sort of is trying to depart from like a you know classic labor history model where we might like follow an occupation in place over time, um, which undoubtedly introduces a lot of problems. Um, but from the beginning, I knew it wasn't going to make sense to stay tied to, for instance, a single city because workers themselves are mobile. Um, and in fact, one you know one dynamic I'm particularly interested in is workers who may move between. Um, industrial employment in the cities and rural employment, often on a seasonal basis um, in the surrounding environ. So I think sometimes like when we, you know, think about different parts of the New Deal labor regime, we think about, okay, these big industrial cities, you know, where unions are powerful in the Northeast and the Midwest. And then we think about, you know, rural regions in the West and the South. Um, and part of what I'm interested in is you know, many of these places are actually quite proximate to each other. Um, that's true, for instance, in upstate New York, where you have mover, workers moving between um, industrial employment in cities like Rochester and Buffalo, and then into agricultural employment um, on the apple and potato farms immediately surrounding them. Um, so my, the sort of dissertation is made up of different case studies, um, but they really sort of traverse the country. Well, that's a really fascinating approach, sort of a social history, a really proper social history of casual labor. Thanks. Uh, how did you come by your social worker? It sounds like she really forms an important uh, actor in your story and perhaps also an informant. Yeah. Um. So I guess I, I sort of found this broader cohort of mostly women who are, you know, many of them... Um, come of age in the progressive era. They go to schools like Vassar and Smith. Um, they study economics and sociology. Um, they're deeply involved in the formation of New Deal policies, especially as part of the Social Security Board. Um, and many of them are interested in work because they're coming from the perspective of looking at women and children who have never fit into that paradigm of, you know, the the typical industrial worker with a greater degree of union protections. Um, and in the post-war era, many of them um, move either into the private sector or into the state government. And they begin to expand their focus, you know, still using that analysis of, okay, what if we think about all of the workers who are like left out from our paradigm of what the typical worker is? Um, and for them, that includes migrant workers, um, it includes disabled workers, it includes formerly incarcerated workers, and they begin to sort of use that paradigm to follow, follow these workers sort of across industries. Um, so one sort of way I've gotten into sources, because of course it's like in, in not following a single occupation, I'm not bound to a single, you know, labor unions archive. So I'm often trying to follow um, people who are interested in, um, in the problems of of the poor in their period and in the problems of, of work outside of the labor movement in their period. So that's really where I've um, 
sort of trace these workers. And, and this particular social worker, Helen Hall, she was the um, president of the National Federation of Settlements, which was a sort of big national association um, that sort of combined um, multiple like local settlement houses under its umbrella. Um, and her papers are at um, the University of Minnesota. Well, what uh, could you perhaps um, give us an example of a, a worker or a family of workers and what their experience would have been with casualized labor in this period? Yeah, so I can elaborate a little bit more on some of the dynamics I'm looking at. So one kind of dynamic <laughs> I had from that set um, was men who are, in fact, employed in industrial unionized jobs um, and have, you know, relative security of employment, but don't always have regular work. So, for instance, um, mm. there was one family I looked at in that series um, where the uh, man was a fireman for General Electric, which is a major company that like began unionizing in the early 20th century. Um, but he experiences a pattern that's relatively common where he has this job with General Electric. He can count on that job going forward because his union has won him protection from sort of summary dismissal. Um, but what he, what he hasn't achieved, what his workforce hasn't achieved is regular work. So General Electric, like many companies, has sort of major fluctuations in demand over the course of the year. Um, some of these fluctuations in industrial employment are seasonal. They have to do with, you know, work that is outdoor weather dependent work. This is true, for instance, of railroad workers, of longshore workers. Um, but even but it's also true of sort of cycles of demand. So um, for major manufacturers, you know, they are often the sort of first step on in the supply chain and then they're gearing their cycles towards you know the manufacturers of consumer goods who may in turn be gearing their cycles towards retail retail cycles um so, so the the phenomenon that results from this is that many workers are on temporary layoff for long periods of time um mm -hmm. these are you know sometimes as few as you know, a few days, but can often stretch to several months. Um, and this is one thing I was looking at at the Hagley um, was the files of the Pennsylvania Railroad, which actually has these graphs of, you know, here's here are 50 workers like and charts of how many days a month they're missing. And some of these workers are as missing as many as 20 days a month. Um, and in other times, their work is really seasonal. So to, to take it back to this General Electric worker, he's he has a job that's theoretically a regular job, but he's only actually working for about six months of the year. So how does his family survive? Um, well, when he's not working, he's doing some like painting and upholstering for his neighbors. So essentially, you know, sort of informal work, which you know he might earn direct monetary compensation for, or for which he might receive sort of payments in kind. Um, his wife is picking blueberries in the summer. Um, so, and this is a very common form of sort of agricultural work for women and children that was picked up on a short-term seasonal basis. Um, and women would often sell these berries at farm stands um, or out of their own homes. Um, and his children are working part-time jobs in the service industry. Um, so, so that's sort of an example of like, you you have a family that might on paper, hey, here's a guy who looks at cheat, who works at GP. Um, that's, you know, great job for a big, you know, thriving company in the post-war moment. Um, his wife on paper is not working, is supported by him. Um, but in fact, you see all members of this family sort of strategizing around this problem of um, his interrupted employment and in taking up these various sort of forms of informal forms of work um, that are used to sustain the family along with, you know, the formal wages that this man receives. And this pattern of a combination of strategies uh, to get through and to make ends meet, is that typical of your subjects? 
Yeah, um, I think so. Basically, the the strategies themselves vary. Um, mm -hmm. But I think what I've seen generally is the sort of way in which, you know, survival is improvisational. It doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. fit a particular template. It doesn't fit this template that we have of, you know, the family wage, the consistently employed husband supporting a dependent spouse and child. But it doesn't necessarily fit the it's not, you know, just the inverse of that either. So you have families sort of moving between different strategies. Um, so, so just to give like another example of, uh, of a very familiar pattern is, um, you know, while men's work is often vulnerable to these sort of drastic fluctuations, the, these fluctuations are relatively less common um, in forms of service and retail work that women often have. Now, these are much lower wage jobs, um, and they're jobs from which workers may, in fact, be dismissed quite easily because they don't mm -hmm. For the most part, these are not unionized jobs. These workers don't have any protections. Um, so you will see women, you know, another way to mediate these, the losses that, you know, um, from the irregular work of one of these manufacturing workers is to hold like a consistent, if low wage job in the service industry. Um, so for instance, um, another family I looked at, um, it was in this case, actually an older daughter, her father had been supporting the family um, working as a, a manufacturer for a small jewelry firm. Um, and he had been injured and was unable to work for several months. And so the daughter takes up a job as a receptionist in a local job in a local doctor's office. Um, now, because women don't have protections from dismissal in these jobs, they might move from one job to another. So like the GE guy, even though he's not working, he has an incentives to stay in his job because he's accruing seniority benefits women and children who are working in the retail and service industry, not so much. So another sort of strategy you see um, is something I'm calling serial employment, um, basically working consistently, but moving very often between similar jobs, um, sometimes also on, you know, on a seasonal basis, like, you know, when, you know, the sort of rush season is um, in the department stores in the winter versus the ice cream stand is open in the summer. Um, so friends, so that that's a sort of example of like, how are some women dealing with this pattern? Um, one way is to sort of move between these low wage jobs in the retail and service sector. Another way might be to sort of, and again, that that comes again with the attendant problem of you, you can't actually count on any of these jobs. You're not making a lot of money. You're often working in really grueling conditions. Um, so you, that's a reason why you might take up, you know, informal employment, such as, you know, selling blueberries or magazines instead. Um, so you see, you see basically families like respond to this basic problem of precarity and of not being able to rely on a single income in many ways. But at, at the same time, I'm starting to, to sort of pull out some common patterns. Mm -hmm. Well, what are some of the political consequences of having a large proportion of uh, the country dependent on these, um, um, uh, as you say, improv improvisational survival strategies? Yeah, and this um this gets into the work that I was doing at the Hagley, um, okay. where I was focusing on um the campaign in the late 1940s and 1950s for a guaranteed annual wage. So this was um I, the kind of kickoff moment for this is there's a big study um in 1947 by Mary Latimer um who works um he, he was at the time working for the Office of Price Administration, but he had worked for a variety of New Deal agencies. Um, and he's pointing out, you know, exactly this phenomenon, okay, you know, the labor movement has secured for workers these new protections, but we still have this problem of workers being on layoff for several weeks or months at a time. What do we do about this? Um, and Latimer is interested in studying some companies that have 
guaranteed not only employment, but actually regular work for their employees. And they've done this in a variety of ways, sometimes by, you know, engaging in strategies that are meant to kind of even out the production cycle, and sometimes just in guaranteeing wages, even when there isn't work. Um, so Procter & Gamble is an example of a company that has done this. Um, Cornell Meatpacking Company has done this. Um, and, and Latimer's idea is that, you know, the, the next step for the industrial labor movement is to push for a guaranteed annual wage. So essentially to move um, workers who are working on an hourly basis and therefore are not being paid if they're not working to working on a, you know, even if they're not working to being paid on the schedule that, you know, a, a salaried office worker might be paid on on an annual schedule. Um, mm -hmm. And so this gets taken up um, by a number of CIO unions, um, most especially um, by the United Auto Workers, led by Walter Ruther at the moment, um, who are sort of pushing for companies to respond to this problem of, you know, continued insecurity within these secure jobs. Um, so much of what I was looking at at the Hagley was the response to that campaign by the National Association of Manufacturers. Um, the National Association of Manufacturers, I will surprise no one to know who, who has engaged with that organization, um, is very much opposed to this idea. Um, and the National Association of Manufacturers really sees this as, you know, labor kind of crossing the line and beginning to actually dictate how the production cycle should work, to having a say in industrial policy itself, which mm -hmm. is, of, of course, exactly what people like Ruther want. Um, and they're, they're in a really interesting, tricky spot because... And this is where the experience of, you know, sort of male industrial workers is very different from women and workers of color who are expected and assumed to experience insecurity, because these are workers who have been told by everyone at the top, like, you know, you, you deserve security. This is the point of the New Deal. Um, and so the National Association of Manufacturers, as well as, you know, a number of individual companies um, that are strongly opposed to these campaigns in their particular workforces are trying to say, okay, like security, like there is this natural need for security, like every man who is supporting a family needs to know that he can rely on his income. Um, but this is a step too far. And this is in fact, like a, a security that workers are not entitled to demand. Um, and they make, you know, a number of interesting arguments to, you know, which I can elaborate on more. Um, but basically the, the National Association of Manufacturers really takes a lead in sort of shutting down this effort to sort of expand the New Deal from, you know, providing various protections against employment to actually providing more work for more workers. Yeah, perhaps, uh, would you perhaps explain a little bit about what you found in the archive that allowed you to uh, unpack this and start to piece this story together? Yeah. So again, the, the National Association of Manufacturers is in this kind of like tricky spot of like, okay, we, you know, security, it's it's hard in this moment <laughs> in the late 1940s, early 1950s to argue against security as a good thing, right? So this is not like the moment we see in politics in the 1970s where, you know, flexibility is extolled very explicitly as a value. Um, and so the, the strategy that they really take is to, on the one hand, say to each other, well, it's impossible to provide these guarantees because we really can't distinguish, you know, our longtime employees from our casual and temporary workers. And then to say publicly, the problem with the guaranteed annual wage um, is that it benefits casual and temporary workers. And that's unfair to the stable family man who has devoted his life to this company. Um, the reason they're making that argument essentially is because many of the proposals um, for the guaranteed wage were really about um, increasing company provided 
unemployment benefits, um, in which in combination with state provided unemployment benefits would have sort of added up to um, equal the amount of wages that workers were not receiving in these periods. Um, so the, the formula for calculating these, um, basically like the, the more you were receiving from unemployment insurance, the less you would be receiving from your company and vice versa. So the argument that National Association of Manufacturers is making for instance, is, well, unemployment unemployment benefits are cued to give more money to men with families, um, whereas single men get less from state unemployment. Now, this would work, which means that those single men would get more from, uh, from the companies themselves. Um, so the National Association of Manufacturers is really making this argument that, like, these employment benefits would benefit this very particular class of sort of drifters, of these single men who aren't attached, they're not devoted to their family, to their community. Um, and this is definitely like tinged with homophobia um, in ways that connect back to, for instance, the way that Marco Candidate writes about um, casual laborers in the 1930s. Um, so th there's this effort on the part of National Association of Manufacturers, even as they're acknowledging the extent to which these precarious conditions affect workers across their workforces to sort of carve out this imagined group of workers who are, you know, casual and deviant um, and who cannot be trusted um, and for whom these benefits would make a greater difference. Um, so that's really what I'm, I'm kind of getting into now um, is thinking about how, you know, within these workforces, these, you know, these differences get imagined and carved out between different workers. Um, which runs sort of directly in opposition to this campaign to to create greater security for the entire workforce. That's that's just a, a fascinating story. What else did you look at in the Hagley Library collections? Yeah, so the the other main thing I looked at, um, in addition to the National Association of Manufacturers records, were the records of specific companies that have these sort of patterns of seasonal unemployment, and looking at how they measure them, um, as well as their their efforts to you know respond to workers who are are seeking out greater concessions. Um, so I, I've already mentioned the Pennsylvania railroads, and they're really typical of again of an industry in which you know workers have won like spectacularly high wages. They have won considerable protections. In fact, railroad workers get their own form of unemployment insurance from the Railroad Retirement Board, which is in excess of the unemployment insurance that even most industrial workers get, um, but in which these sort of seasonal patterns persist. Um, so one thing I was sort of looking at in their records was just like how, how employers are actually charting out the seasonal patterns of work and how they're managing around it. Um, another company I was looking at was the Seagram company, um, which owns a number of distilleries. Um, now, brewing alcohol is also a seasonal business. Again, it's connected on both sides of the supply chain on the one hand to, you know, the raw materials are produced in an agricultural context, which is seasonally and weather dependent. And then on the consumer side, as in every industry, consumer industry fluctuates over the course of the year. Um, and one thing I was interested in looking at with the Seagram company is in workers sort of trying to access unemployment insurance, because at, at least theoretically, unemployment insurance is meant to sort of step in and enable workers to survive during these periods of temporary layoff. Um, and workers are demanding a guaranteed annual wage because that seems to be not working. And that's one thing, you know, in my earlier work with the social worker, workers had often talked about was like, hey, I can't get unemployment insurance. Um, 
even workers who are sort of theoretically on paper, like they are in an industry that is supposed to be covered by unemployment insurance, they don't seem to get it. So I was trying to figure out why. Um, and one really interesting thing I found in the Seagram papers was basically that company has a policy of um, disputing every unemployment insurance claim that is made. Um, so of course, there are all kinds of conditions attached to your ability to collect unemployment insurance. Um, in some cases, seasonal workers are explicitly exempted. Um, in other cases, you have to have worked for uh, a certain amount of time, um, I think often about three months, but these conditions, of course, vary wildly across different states. Um, you have to be ready and able to work, which means that um, workers with disabilities are typically not able to get unemployment insurance. Sometimes they're covered by workman's comp, sometimes not. Um, and you have to be available for work. And this is a big one because basically it means that um, if your employer recalls you, you have to be there like, and come back. Um, and this both prevents workers from going out and seeking other jobs during these periods of temporary layoff because then they might not be around um, when the foreman, you know, calls at their house, so they won't be there to, you know, show up at the site um, when they're called to show up the next day. Um, and companies are really able to manipulate the system where basically like they'll they'll call workers back with as short notice as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. um, and they'll seek out evidence of, you know, workers trying to find other jobs. So there, there are number because these the criteria vary so greatly from state to state and because they're often there are all of these exemptions carved out, you know, employers like Seagram are taking whatever opportunity they can to say, hey, this particular worker is not actually eligible for unemployment compensation. Um, which I think of it, it is an interesting dynamic to me because we often think of, you know, the social security benefits as, you know, the more generous part of the New Deal state um, in contrast to something like aid to families with dependent children. Um, but there's a question of like, are you eligible for unemployment insurance on paper? And are you actually receiving your unemployment insurance? Um, so that's one thing I was able to follow in, the, in these company records is just looking at all of the different ways um, in which employers are trying to contest often on like a case by case basis, um, workers attempts to retrieve unemployment insurance. I'm wondering whether your study has implications for the present moment. Yeah, I mean, I definitely like a, you know, going back to what I said at the start, like one, you know, sort of motivation of the project was to say, you know, we're having all of these conversations about the decline of the good job, the rise of the gig economy, um, unstable work. Um, and we often think of ourselves as having sort of moved away from a one-time norm. Um, and I, I started diving into this research after reading basically a bunch of sociological studies in the 1950s and 60s, um, where these discoveries were repeatedly made. <laughs> so we sort of continue to discover that this norm of stable work is, is not, in fact, the norm. Um, and often our response to that is to say, OK, but here's the exception. So the kind of motivation of the project is to say, like, what if instead of taking these workers as the exception from a norm, whether we think of it as the norm of our own time or the norm that was once passed, like, what if we look at these workers as the norm and study, you know, what happened to them, how they responded to it, and also, you know, how their situation was understood as a political matter. Um, and, and to me, you know, that's important in terms of understanding the present day moment in that I think, you know, if we think of the problems I mean, this is a, you know, just classic historian justification, but if, if we think of the problems we're confronting as entirely novel, we're going to miss um, everything we've tried in the past and, you know, both the successes and the failures. Um, so uh, 
with that being said, I think that probably what I know won't know until the end of the project is, you know, having that like, you know, really kind of clear answer on what what were our most successful attempts, um, what were the failed attempts, why did they fail? Um, and I think those answers are really going to vary like across across different industries and for different components of the workforce. Um, but I wanted to begin by sort of, yeah, di diving into this category of work um, and seeing it as not novel or exceptional, but rather like a really persistent feature of our economy over time. Well, that's a really exciting project and I can't wait to read the finished product. Uh, thank you, Maya, for taking the time to share it with us. Thanks so much. You're welcome. And for the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts or more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, join us online. You can visit hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger.